So in a moment we're going to read from Matthew chapter 22, verse 15 onwards, to the end of the chapter. But I I handed out these little cards as you came in uh, for a reason. Um, These cards say, if you could ask God one question, what would that question be? I guess at any given time of your life, that question might change. Um, maybe the question today is, what about coronavirus? Why, why, is, why is that happening? But we do come with our questions, don't we? Yes. We often do. We come with our questions for God. Um, my son is two. You've heard him, no doubt, uh, many times, screaming and shouting. Uh, he, he asks questions. Now, often it's because he wants to know things. But equally as often, (laughs) questions actually show that Eddie's not listened very well. So the question itself, daddy this, daddy that, when I've already said that's only going to happen after tea time, is evidence, isn't it, that he hasn't accepted what I've already told him. And actually, what we're going to see when we get to Matthew chapter 22 is a whole bunch of questions for Jesus. And they're from the brightest and the best leaders. So these should be top questions. Uh, They're both religious and political leaders uh, in Jesus' day. And so we're going to hear what their questions are for Jesus and what they use that opportunity, that one question, how they use it. But the first thing to note about this is that Jesus' conversation with them has already been happening, hasn't it? Last week we saw the three stories that Jesus told about them, concerning them. And these were stories with a message behind them. They explored the Pharisees' true attitude towards God and where it would lead them. So it really was quite in their face, wasn't it? And it actually was a really gracious opportunity for them to see their own hearts that were full of pride and evil and even anger towards God, but they just didn't see it. So that's a gracious opportunity, isn't it? It reminded me a bit of when, you know, Nathan goes to King David and David's just had Uriah handily kind of dealt with because he slept with his wife, Bathsheba. And David, David is in sin. And Nathan goes to confront him. But he knows that he can't just say, David, you've done something wrong here. Because David would not hear. And so he tells a story, doesn't he? And there's that story about injustice. And David gets really het up about the story. And at the end of the story, the, the big note for David is, you are the man in the story. And suddenly he's really cut to the heart. And yet when that you are the man moment comes for the Pharisees last week, they don't, they're not cut to the heart with repentance, are they? They're, they're confirmed in their pride. And they don't see that they've got anything wrong with them. They don't, they don't accept what's being said about them. So there are two responses, isn't there? There's the proud, I'm okay, I don't need, I'm not going to hear anything that says otherwise. Or there's David who's quite cut to the heart. And he recognises what he's done is evil in the sight of God. And so, when we get to verse 15 of chapter 22, that's why the Pharisees are doing what they're doing. Because they haven't listened to the gracious opportunity that Jesus has given them 
they are responding, as he said they would, with aggression, trying to entangle him, plotting to try and trap him in his words. There are three attempts, three questions to do that. Uh, We're going to look at each of them. But that's why this whole interaction sounds a little bit on first impression as though they are the prosecution and Jesus is on trial. It's It's going to read like that. So let's read it now and let's um, look at these questions. Let's read from verse 15 of chapter 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to uh, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marvelled, and they left him and went away. So question number one from verses uh, 15 through to 22. We know that they're trying to trap Jesus. Uh, It's what an investigator or a lawyer might be hoping to gain in questioning a suspect. They're hoping they're going to slip up and say something that incriminates them. It's a pretty unholy alliance, isn't it? Because there's the Pharisees' own disciples. Notice they're not going themselves. That would be too obvious. They're sending their disciples hoping to sort of disguise themselves a little bit, maybe. And they're teaming up with the Herodians, which is a political group. And they ask a political question, don't they? What questions do they ask in verse 17? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Which side is Jesus going to land on this question? It's pretty yes, no. It's pretty sort of black and white, isn't it? It's like, is is it right to pay taxes? Should I? Or should I not? They're trying to get Jesus to answer either way. And really, they think it's quite a a good question because either he says no and he's basically subverting the government and the Herodians are the people who are in tune with Hope Herod and they're going to report that back and he's going to get quite seriously dealt with. Either Jesus is leading a rebellion or he is the friend of the Roman pagan tax collectors. You see, the, the Jews are trying, the Pharisees are trying to get him to side with one of those two groups so that they can just dismiss him. So that's what they think is pretty clever about the question. But notice how Jesus is going to respond um, to that question. And he says, he says two things, really. First of all, his response is to show that they are hypocrites. And he does that in verse 18. He says, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. The Pharisees, and we're going to see this more and more, they wanted people to see them as the good ones. The way they dealt with the law made them look good. They're trying to, trying to make Jesus not look good, aren't they? And Jesus actually shows that even though they're looking like the ones who are trying to keep the rules, that actually they're not. Because he asked them for a denarius. 
And they can produce one just like that. Because they've got one in their possession. Now a denarius was the coin that had to be paid for the tax. On that coin, on one side was Caesar's head. And it read, Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side, it said that his, uh, Caesar's wife was a high priest. <laughs> so they had in their possession a coin that had this really strong blasphemy on it. And so even though they're asking a question which is and wanting to look like the good people here, Jesus exposes that, that actually they're not. They're looking good on the outside, but they're not looking great on the inside. And that's why he says you're hypocrites. When it comes to godliness, that's what we tend to do, isn't it? Look good on the outside, and yet the inside is completely different. Another story altogether. And we tend to do what they're, gonna, what they're doing with God's law here, which is to reduce it to a set of binary options. So yes or no, yes, no's, do's or don'ts. If only I can just tick the box. It's, more, it's achievable. I can do it. And the more they give Jesus options in this section, they say, yes, no, Jesus. The more Jesus bursts the whole banks of their question with his answer. He doesn't play their reduction game. We've seen that, haven't we, in the Sermon on the Mount, where we want to minimise God's law to just have I murdered or not? Have I committed adultery or not? Jesus maximises its application to the whole of life. And so Jesus is not going to play the reduction game. Well, that's his response in this situation. What is his response? Well, let's have a look. He's exposed that they're hypocrites. They don't even practice what they preach. But then he says this in verse 20. He asks, what, whose likeness and inscription is this? It's Caesar's, they say. And Jesus said to them, give, therefore, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. It's got Caesar's picture on it. It belongs to him. Give back to Caesar what belongs to him. If you're going to use his coins for whatever you want to do, buying and selling, then you, have, you should give Caesar a, a cut of... You know, he deserves to have something for that privilege, doesn't he? So give, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Well, that part of Jesus' answer is pretty straightforward, isn't it? You can tick that box, Pharisees. Give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But Jesus doesn't stop there. second part of his answer says this. And to God, the things that are God's. Give to God. Give back to God the things that are God's. That's pretty huge, isn't it? I mean, the things that are God's. We've got to give back to him absolutely everything. Because everything belongs to him. In fact, our whole lives are meant to be about him. And that's the response that he deserves. And so when with people who are trying to make it easy or just achievable to, to live God's way, this was the one thing that they, that they were failing to see that they felt ridiculously short of it. And we do too, because we don't give God everything that he deserves. We don't give him our full, um, our full praise, our full worship. 
We don't acknowledge him in all of our lives. So although they could keep part what they thought was part of the law, and they weren't really keeping it at all. Let's look at the second one. And I put it on your sheet as, isn't this life all there is? So let's look at that in verses 23 through to 33. The same day Sadducees came to Jesus who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and third down to the seventh. After them all, Jesus, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. It's one of those kind of confusing questions, isn't it? It's like you think you expect it to be a maths question or something at the end. Like, you know, some kind of confusing riddle or problem to solve. And it's obviously they've made up this scenario, haven't they? The one footnote we're told, or the side note that Matthew gives us at the start there, is that the Sadducees are those who said there was no resurrection anyway. So what are they doing asking Jesus about the resurrection? You can see there's a, there's a sinister way. They're just, trying, they're just trying to ridicule the whole idea of resurrection. Okay, They're trying to say, well, it can't possibly be um, that people rise from the dead. And you saying that you're going to rise from the dead, that's, that's just as laughable. They actually only followed the first five books of the Bible. And so that's where a lot of the other scriptures you could go to in the Old Testament about resurrection, that they just didn't think they were authoritative. They just, they just kept themselves to Genesis, to Deuteronomy. Or, you know. um, and the next one, so, so they asked that question. And the question is, well, Moses taught that people could remarry if there's someone who's died. Um, and actually that, that, was, that was good because people would be left without an inheritance otherwise. So, G- so they're saying to Jesus, well, if people are just remarried in heaven, Jesus, what, what's the point? So he, they're saying resurrection and this law, this, this Moses law, they don't fit together, so it's, it's, just, it's just stupid. It's ridiculous. That's what they're trying to, to prove from that one example. Because, after all, this woman couldn't have seven husbands in heaven. She's got to have one. And Jesus answers, doesn't he? But he, and he, we're going to see his answer in verses 29 to 33. But this is actually one of those questions that we could ask today, isn't it? In that we could say... Jesus, isn't this life all there is? That might be one of the questions that people come out with. They're saying, this, isn't this life all there is? There's nothing more than just the here and now, Jesus. So all this talk of the supernatural, all this talk of resurrection, eternal life, well, that's got to be too far-fetched, hasn't it? Jesus' answer comes to them in those verses 29 to verse 33 and it comes in three parts again so let's look at them first Jesus tells them they haven't understood their scriptures because they haven't seen the power of God 
So they, they, don't, they not only don't know the scriptures that they say they have, but they don't know the power of God. They don't know the God of those scriptures. Then Jesus says something interesting. He says that there will be no marriage in heaven or in the new creation. There will be no marriage. Did you know that? We mar- people are married here on one life. This is one of the things that is not going to be a feature of heaven. It does, it's discontinuous for heaven. It's not going to be the same. So that's, that's one thing. And then Jesus says in verse 32, let me show you from your own scriptures in Exodus chapter 3 that God is the God of that raises the dead. Okay? He quotes from Exodus chapter 3 and he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. That was pretty normal for the name for God, the God of those patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then Jesus says this, well, he's not God of the dead, but of the living. By the time God has said that in Exodus, all of those guys died. And yet he says, I am the God of these guys, which proves that they must be living. That he's raised them from the dead. And so he's showing them from their own scriptures that they don't know this God. They don't know the power of this God who can do that. He can raise the dead. Uh, so we're in that, we just finished off that second question in verses 23 to 33. Um, let's look at this, first, this last question in verses 34 to 40. Notice it's the Pharisees again. So they didn't have much joy with the first question. Uh, they were left marvelled, marvelling at Jesus' wisdom. And they left him and went away. And, now, and they sent in the Sadducees for the second round. Uh, but everyone was just left astonished by Jesus' teaching. And so they come in verse 34. They, they come themselves. Or actually, they don't come, do they? Sorry, sorry, they do come. They heard that he had silenced the Pharisees. They gathered together and they pick their best. They pick a lawyer, an expert in the law, to come to Jesus to challenge him. To test him. The question is, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Lots of laws in the, Old, in the Old Testament, lots of commandments. Which is the great one? Which is, which is the most important? What would we say? What do you think we'd say? What's the greatest commandment? What's the great commandment? Number one, what would we say? <laughs> We'd say what they said, which is, uh, which is what Jesus says um, in response. And it wouldn't have been an eye raiser for them because they would have said this twice a day as Jews. It's called the Shema. They would have said, love the Lord your God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That wouldn't have shocked them to one bit. In fact, that probably would have been their answer. But Jesus floods the banks of their question because they're just wanting to limit it and say, okay, well, somehow we've done this. We've, we've, we've done this, Jesus. And in verse 38, he says, this is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. 
So Jesus doesn't set up the second as being sort of coming in close second. He actually sets it up on a part equal to loving God. He says, you want to fulfill the law and the commandments. You might think that you're doing loving God. Great. But how's your love for others? What does that look like? And really, that's the one that they exposed that they weren't really doing that. And that we don't, do we? We might say, I love you, God. But really, how are we loving others? Are we loving others? Or are we just loving ourselves? And so Jesus is kindly, quite strongly, I think, exposing the fact that the law that they thought that they could keep for their own salvation is actually the law that was going to condemn them because they they weren't keeping it. If all of the law and the prophets depend on these, like a shelf, a shelf has two brackets, you take one away, which often happens, doesn't it? The whole thing falls down. You can't, Jesus is saying, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, so we've, done the, we've looked at the questions that they had for Jesus. And questions can show, can't, can't they, sometimes that we're actually re- rejecting or refusing to, to listen to the person that's in front of us. And Jesus exposed that. He said, these questions just show your heart, really. Um, but now we're going to see that although we see God as being the one who needs to answer all our questions satisfactorily, actually it's the other way round. <laughs> In verses 41 to 46, as Jesus turned, physically turned the tables in the temple and upset the whole practice. Now he turns the tables in this conversation and he has a question for them. Just one question for them that they need to answer. Let's read it. Verses 41 to 46. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Okay. This is a question, but it's not like the sort of political, intellectual questions, that they, riddles that they've come out with just to show their intelligence. Or to try to. It's a very, very personal question. The reason is because it concerns a person. It concerns the person of the Christ. The God's anointed king. Because it's a personal question or a question about a person. There's no neutral. You can't say, oh, I think it's this and someone else thinks it's that. It's a bit like a party invitation. If you get a wedding invitation or a party invitation and you ignore it, even to ignore it actually says what you think about that person. So you can't just... His question is very different. His question concerns a person. And he asks, what do you think about the Christ? 
And this leads us on to our second point on the sheet. Jesus isn't in the dock. Guilty. He's on the judge's seat. Jesus isn't in the dock. He's on the judge's seat. So Jesus says, whose son is he? Well, that's an easy question in some ways because all of the Old Testament said he would be descendant of David. So they say the son of David with a little s. They say he's going to be a descendant of David. They know that much because that's what the scriptures said. He would be descendant of David. But Jesus asked them another question, a follow-up question, follow-up question that points us to Psalm 110. Where David himself says, the Lord, capital L's, uh, capital letters, Yahweh, God, said to my Lord. And that whole psalm is about the Messiah, the Christ. Just flip back in your Bibles to Psalm 110. It's quite a short psalm, actually. We could probably read it all together. The Lord says to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So this is about the Messiah, the Christ. It's David speaking here. And the first thing we get is his identity. And David is referring to him as Lord. Which is a a term of respect, isn't it? It's saying, you know, Lord. And my Lord. This is more than just me referring to Eddie, a descendant of mine. This is a high respect. And we can see that's, that's what David thought because he... We see the position of this person in, verses, in verse 1. What position are they given? Well, they're invited to sit at my right hand, the right hand of the Lord. Just as we, in the boardroom, you get the idea of the power and the responsibility of the people based on where they sit. The person who sat at the right hand of, the, of God is going to act on his behalf. It's like the king, he, his right hand is the one that commands the troops and says go. So the right hand is the action hand. So this one who is the descendant of David, yes, but actually he is so much greater and more important than they even realised. And yet he was standing right there before them, Jesus, in the flesh. And they came with their questions but his question for them is, who, what do you say about the Christ? He takes them back to the real issue, their response to him. And like I said before, it's a personal thing. You can't be neutral about Jesus. Either you receive him as God's anointed king, 
over you, over your life, and over all of creation, or you reject him. And Jesus says, without any doubt here, in this psalm, that when he returns, that there will be judgment for his enemies. So it's pretty concerning, isn't it, for the people who are opposing Jesus at this point. Yes, it looks like they're the ones who are sort of calling the shots. They've got Jesus on the ropes. It looks like they're the ones. In a moment, again, they're put to death. They probably thought, hey, we've, we've got away with this. But Jesus is going to be the one who's going to be raised to life. It goes to heaven and seats himself at the right hand of the Father. And it only takes God's command, the Father's command. And he's returning in judgment. So, let's return to our thought at the start. If we could ask God one question. But I want to say that if we're the only ones who are asking the questions, we're quickly going to come up against the ceiling of our own indifference. By that I mean we're only going to find out the answers to the questions we want to ask. We might be asking loads of questions, but are we asking the question that matters most? And one of the questions that I don't think we are going to ask, if it's down to us, is who is Jesus? It's not a question you ask people, ask any of your friends. I I will give you 50 quid if they come back and say, the question I've got for God is, who is Jesus? That's not the question we're asking, is it? And so if we only ever ask, if it's only us who are asking the questions, we're quickly going to come to the limit of our own indifference, really, because we don't really care about this question. We're never going to ask it, so we're never going to find the answer. Whatever our question for God might be, he has a question for us, and it's this. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about my son? And it's a question that everyone's going to answer. If Jesus has been declared by heaven to be Lord over all, by being raised from the dead and now seated at the right hand in heaven, and if he is going to return, it's a question that is pretty important, isn't it? What do I make of him? And it's worth us seeing that no response to him is neutral. It's always personal. We either receive him as our Lord or we reject him. Our questions actually, sometimes I think, might represent not our open-mindedness, as we'd like others to think, but maybe our unwillingness to listen to what has been plainly told to us from the Bible. Jesus has told us who he is. He's told us what he's going to do. He did what he said he was going to do. And yet he has told us he's returning and what that's going to be like. And so our questions can sometimes be actually trying to work out a way around that. You know, the judgment, I don't want it to come to me, so I'm just going to try and think of a way to, you know, get myself out of this. But let's not respond as the Pharisees did, by wasting every warning of what judgment they got, because they got quite a lot of warnings about judgment, didn't they? And we have the Bible here. We hear it week upon week. Let's not waste the opportunity we have when we hear about God's judgment. Let's take seriously what Jesus has plainly told us about the future because he's kept every other word to us. We've no reason to believe that he's not going to do what he says he's going to do.
And we might be able to give the right answer, as the Pharisees were, like we just say, Jesus is the Son of God. But really, has it made any difference to our lives? You see that the Pharisees had the right answers, but it really had no impact. It didn't change anything. And, and we want to be people who, uh, actually, it, our own lives will show what we really believe, won't it? So what we prioritise, what we spend our time on, what we, what we think is most important, and what we show with our lives, well, our lives will show that, won't it? It's not, it's, it's not going to be hidden. Um, so let's, let's think about whether we too are living with Jesus as our Lord as the one who is in charge and the one who will return in judgment but the one in whom there is salvation because that's the other thing isn't it that God's right hand is the hand that can save the hand that can bring people out of rather than destroy them can actually save them and bring them into his safety let's have a stop there and we'll have a chance for questions in just a moment I think it would be good to pray in light of what we've heard. Um, we've been hearing about people who come to Jesus with questions. And yet really they show in their hearts that there isn't really a willingness to hear from him. There isn't really a, a willingness to listen to what he's saying. And that can be us too, can't it? Let's pray that we would be those who respond to him. Uh, based on what he's told us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we tend to think others are worse than us. Uh, We make a big thing out of the small things and we make a small thing out of the big things. You show here that loving you with all of our heart mind and strength and loving others as we love ourselves it's really beyond us if we think we're doing that we're very deluded and yet we're so easy to to say that others are not fulfilling the law or not keeping or living godly lives Uh, we condemn ourselves when we say that we too are in need of your forgiveness we, can't, we are not right with you and we need um, you to show your mercy towards us. And yet Jesus, you are the one who has been shown to be the king over all, who reigns over the whole world. You are seated at the right hand in heaven right now and you will return. Please lead us now to see uh, the needs to, re- to respond to you now in humility and repentance. May it be more than just words. May our lives show that we believe who you are. Amen.